All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome, uh, welcome here this morning. A big welcome to those of you online that are watching this uh, from the comforts of your home, hopefully in your comfy clothes, and uh, something good to uh, drink or munch on while you're watching this uh, sermon. Uh, so glad that you were able to make it out and uh, join us today. Hasn't this been a great series so far? It, uh, we're, and we're just getting started. We're not done yet. Today, in, uh, in the series of Cha-Ching, we're going to be learning about the benefits of giving, or in other words, uh, the way I like to say it, uh, what's really in it for me, right? What am I going to get out of this? So if you've got your Bibles with you this morning, I would encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 20, verses 32 to 35. And like Pastor Rob would tell you, there is a table of contents in the, in the front of your Bible, and people work really hard to put it there. So don't be afraid to use it. Or you could just turn to page 782. <laughs> and once you find that, would you please stand and we'll read uh, God's Word together. Acts 20, verses 32 to 35. Now I commit to you, God, excuse me, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of Lord Jesus himself. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now let's bow our heads and uh, pray for the service. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, Lord, you are an amazing God. Father, especially during this time when there is a lot of chaos, a lot of unrest, uh, maybe confusion, and there's a lot of fear in your people. Lord, this time I pray for your comfort, your strength to shine through. Lord, that uh, the people that you have called, that we would be uh, light and uh, salt to this world, especially um, those, uh, Lord, for those that, that don't know what's going on and, uh, and don't know where to turn, that they would turn to you. Father, I pray for this series and for this message. Pray, Lord, that the words I speak would be your words. And Lord, I pray for those that hear this message, that they would have open hearts, that the seeds planted today, Lord, would be fruitful, and you would water them, and, uh, and Lord, you would uh, make them grow. Let's pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you guys go ahead and grab a seat. Those of you back home, go ahead and get yourselves comfy. So here, Paul is encouraging the elders in Ephesus to be on guard. He's encouraging them to work hard, to support the weak, and then at the end he reminds them of Jesus' famous quote, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Before I start today's message, I got a quick story about four uh, lifelong friends. They're actually uh, golfing buddies. These guys grew up together in elementary school and all through high school, and uh, they were just inseparable. They were not, uh, they were all equally best friends, and, and they really loved golfing. They played all the tournaments, all the Texas scrambles. They bought memberships to the local golf club every year, and they were always out there, rain or shine. They absolutely loved each other, and they loved golfing. And unfortunately, on one day, uh, when they're golfing, and one of the friends is up, and he's teeing off, 
In the distance, they hear the word four, and an Aaron golf ball comes by, hits him on the head, and knocks him out, and uh, he, uh, he, he falls down to the ground, and he's laying on the ground. And so his, his buddies, they get him picked up, and they get him brought into the hospital. And unfortunately, on the way to the hospital, he succumbs to his injuries, and he passes away. And so the remaining three friends, are, uh, they're devastated by this. They, they can't believe what has happened. I mean, they've been lifelong friends for so many years, and, uh, you know, doing their favorite thing together, and one of them has now been taken away from them. And so that before the funeral, they're meeting together, and they're just reminiscing, and they're discussing the good times that they've had, and they come up with an idea that they want to do something. They, they each want to make a sacrifice that uh, something uh, they could remember their friend by, and so they decide that each of them would contribute one year's worth of membership fees, of, uh, of their golf uh, membership fees, the green fees, I guess, as you would say. And uh, so the green fees for the year is $500. So they've all decided that they're going to leave their friend in the casket. They're going to leave him $500. This is their way that they can sacrifice for him something that will be memorable for them. And so the day the funeral comes along, and uh, people are walking by the casket, and they're, uh, they're saying their condolences to the grieving family. And the first, uh, the first friend walks up to the casket, and he looks down, and he's just got a straight look on his face, and uh, maybe even a little tear coming down. And uh, he just thinks about the good times that he has, and, and he says his goodbyes, and he pulls out five crisp $100 bills out of his pocket, and he slips them in the front pocket of the suit of his friend in the casket. And he walks off, and the second friend comes by, and he sees, he sees his friend laying in the casket there, and he does the same. He, he takes a few moments, and he says a few words, and he just remembers the good times that they've shared together, and he too reaches in his pocket, and he pulls out 10 crisp $50 bills, folds them in half, and he puts them into the front pocket of the suit of his friend there in the casket. And at this time, the third friend walks by, and he comes up to the casket, and just with a straight poker face, and he's just, he's looking into the casket, and he's, he's too thinking about his friend that he lost, devastated, can't believe what has happened. And after a few moments, he pulls out his checkbook, writes out a check for $1,500, folds it in half, puts it into the front pocket of, the, of his friend's suit, and uh, takes the change for himself. <laughs> so for those, some of you that don't write checks might have to ask somebody else later what just happened there, but... He got his benefit in his giving that day. So the question today is, why is it better to be a giver than a receiver? So we've got three points that we're going to cover today. And I really encourage you, if you are taking notes, to write this down. And if you are not taking notes, write this down. First point, why it's good or better to be a giver than a receiver, is that it aligns our hearts with God's will. In Matthew 6, verse 19 to 21, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So in order to understand how this works, we have to answer the question, what is God's will? If we turn to 2 Peter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, 
Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Ezekiel 33 verse 11 says, Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their, from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? It's very simple. God's will is that no one should die and spend eternity in hell separated from him. His will is that everyone would turn, that would repent, turn from their wicked ways, give their lives over to him, and spend eternity with him in heaven. It's the whole reason of creation. It's it, the things that last forever in this world are people. That's the only things. Everything else will pass away. So Jesus here is encouraging us to not store up our treasures here on earth, where they can be destroyed or where they can be stolen, but instead he wants us to store up treasure in heaven where they will last for eternity. And then he also encourages us, or he, he, uh, he teaches us, that where you put your treasure, your heart will follow. A lot of times we think that we put our money, our treasure, into the things that we really value, into the things that we really like. Well, you know, I really like uh, driving motorcycles, so that's where I'm going to put all my money. That's not how it works. It's where you put your money is where the things that you really value. Uh, so if you were uh, here and, and you've really been thinking, like, I, want my, I, I wish my heart was more into the kingdom. I wish I was more excited to see people come to Christ. I, was, I wish I was more excited to read my Bible or just to get into the things of God. I really encourage you, try putting your treasure there. Putting your treasure there and see where your heart will follow. A couple of examples I can give you of this. When uh, shortly after high school, I was working my first full-time job. They, uh, some of the guys came around and they asked if I wanted to join them in an NFL pool. The way this NFL pool worked was you would have to, every week you would get a list of all the games being played and you would have to pick who you thought was going to win each game. And you had to put $5 in every week and then come Monday or Tuesday after all the games were played, whoever picked the most winning teams would win the pot and typically the pot was somewhere around $50, $60. That's the only time that I've ever been involved in any kind of sports-type uh, betting. And I have never, ever before or never, ever since been as emotionally attached or as involved, spent as much time studying the stats, checking the newspaper, watching the games, seeing how things are going, trying to figure out who's got an upcoming team, who's got a stronger team, who's got a weaker team. It's not that I... I, I love or hate sports any more or less. I'm just have not been as interested since that time that I had my treasure invested in there. Uh, for those of you that are investing in the stock market, uh, you're really paying attention right now and you can feel it pulling on your heart, especially with this coronavirus, uh, the price of oil, the oil wars, the market's up and down right now. And so you're checking your treasure, you're checking that stock, you're looking at the funds, the market, see what it's doing. You can feel that in your heart. For those of you that aren't vested in there and don't really know what I'm talking about, it's really not a big deal to you. Or if you got a home with a mortgage on it, you're looking at interest rates, you're watching, what's the Bank of Canada doing? What's, what's my bank doing? Are you, uh, if you're in a floating mortgage, you're really paying attention to that interest rate. If you're not, if you don't have a home, if you don't have a, a, a mortgage, it's really not concerned to you at all. You don't lose any sleep over it. You don't feel it in your heart. So the basic point to take away from this is 
uh, and you've heard this preached from, uh, from the pulpit before, so fill it in with me here. Whatever has your attention has your direction, all right? And what has our attention? Let's be honest with this. Your treasure has your attention. Your money has your attention. You pay attention to what you have in your wallet. You pay attention to what you have in your bank account. And when you take it out and you put it somewhere, a little piece of your heart goes with it and it follows that. Let's move on to point number two. Uh, the second benefit that we receive from giving is that it, in, it invests for your eternal future. Let's tur- turn to Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 9. This is the parable of the shrewd manager. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, Sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So what's going on here is uh, there was a certain manager and he was going to lose his job because he was lazy at work and he wasn't doing a very good job and so the, uh, the owner said, we're going to fire you and uh, get rid of you. And what he did was he financially manipulated his situation to gain favor with others so that they would take him in after he lost his job. He basically bought himself some friends with somebody else's money. And in fact, he had acted so shrewdly, if you look up the word shrewd, it means having sharp powers of judgment or astute. He acted so shrewdly that his master actually commended him. He thought this was, this was really smart of him to do, uh, you know, even though the Bible's not saying that this is the right thing to do or, or, or saying that he acted rightly, but he acted so shrewdly. He was uh, very smart, uh, very, uh, uh, used a lot of wisdom in his judgments to, uh, to make himself uh, a place for when he was, uh, or, or to, uh, to better his circumstances, I guess you could say, uh, when he would be uh, tossed out of work. So what is Jesus telling us here? In verse 9, he's telling us to use the money that we have to gain friends for us in heaven so that when we die, they will welcome us in. It says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwelling. That little phrase there where it says, so when it is gone, in some other translations or versions say, when you die. Uh, So when you physically expire, when you pass on to the next life. Basically, it comes down to, he's saying to use God's funds, because let's be honest here, 
uh, we were born with nothing and we will take nothing with us. So really the money that we have, we don't actually own it. We're just managing it for somebody else. Jesus is telling us to use this money that God has blessed us with to help spread the gospel and to send people to heaven. When, uh, when you give money here to Pathway Community Church and we in turn take that money and use it to bless others or to build beds for kids that don't have beds and they get to hear the gospel and they get that opportunity to give their life to Jesus and they get to go to heaven, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Or when you support missionaries like Rudy and Nitz over in the Philippines and they're spreading the gospel and people get to hear the gospel and, and give their lives to the Lord because you gave money to support them in their work and they could go out and do this. Basically what's happening here is, what Jesus is saying is, there's going to be people all over the world that's going to hear the gospel because you gave and when you come walking into heaven, they're going to find you and they're going to point at you and they're going to say, that guy, that guy right there, her, because she gave, because she listened to God, because she was uh, faithful with what she had, I got to hear the gospel, and that's why I'm here today. And it's so the Bible says that they will welcome you into eternal dwellings. I kind of picture when I get into heaven that it's going to be like cheers, and I'll be like Norm walking in, right? And everybody's just going to yell, they're not going to yell Norm, but they're going to yell my name, right? And that's that's really what I'm looking forward to, that when we walk in, it's going to be a celebration, right? And I'll get to see these people that I have never, ever met before, but because I was faithful and because I gave, these people were able to hear the gospel, and they got to go to heaven. And then I'll be able to truly understand and, and feel the weight of what that giving was. It wasn't actually just dropping some money into a pot somewhere, and I never see it again, but it actually went somewhere. It actually had some, uh, uh, it was dynamic. It, it saved lives. In verse 9, when Jesus says worldly wealth, it actually means so much more than just the cash that we have in our pockets. Let's take a look at this in the New King James Version. Luke 16, verse 9, Jesus says, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. So the question that we have to answer here is, what is mammon? Right? What's this word Jesus is using, mammon? The short answer, mammon is an Aramaic word which means riches. It is derived from the Syrian god of riches who came from Babylon. The word Babylon means sown in confusion. Anybody remember the Tower of Babel and what happened there? Mass confusion when everybody started speaking different languages. So, the word mammon, uh, it really is, is, uh, is a, a god of riches, so to say. Then Jesus goes on to say in uh, verses 10 to 13, he says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is also unjust in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? If you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one 
and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So mammon is, means so much more than just cash or, or money uh, or, or possessions. Uh, mammon wants to be served. Mammon is a spirit, right? If mammon is not a spirit, then how come it can talk? It'll say things to us like, if I had more money, I'd be happy. Or how many times have you thought, if I had more money, my spouse would love me more, or my kids would love me more. Or if I had more money, I'd have less problems. Right, mammon will say things like, you don't need to be concerned with this series right now. You really don't have enough money. Or mammon will say things like, well, you don't have to give. You shouldn't be concerned with that. You need to look out for yourself. Mammon is the direct opposite of God. Another way you could say this is mammon is the Antichrist. Revelations 13 we learn that the Antichrist does not really rule by the threat or fear of war, uh, disease. Uh, mammon, or, or sorry, the Antichrist does not rule by the threat of the coronavirus. The Antichrist rules by the fear or threat of not being able to buy and sell. Anybody tried to buy some toilet paper recently? Or anybody buy a little too much toilet paper recently? Don't raise your hand. But you can see the mass hysteria that's going on just with even hearing in the news that there's a, a virus coming. And I still understand why, but we're running out of toilet paper. And I'm not sure how long people are planning on staying at home, but I'm not planning on staying home that long. But, right, it sets in. You see the first few people starting to buy some toilet paper. And even if you're not scared, but you see that, well, this is going to run out. I should buy some too. I should buy more than what I typically buy. Well, they make more. And we'll get more. And it's going to be okay. And if we run out of toilet paper, it's not going to be the end of the world for you. It's not going to be the worst thing that's probably ever happened to you in your life. You will find other ways to survive. So in essence, mammon does not want you to give. Mammon does not want to see people going into heaven. Mammon will try to do everything he can to persuade you to not listen to God when God asks you to give. He's going, to, uh, he's going to try and keep you focused on yourself and make sure that you're listening to him. Uh, he's also very cunning. The people of, people of Israel were uh, quite familiar with this. Turn to Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 to 6. Now this is, um, this is after the Exodus. The children of Israel are in the wilderness at this time. And Moses is up on the mountain talking to God, getting the Ten Commandments, things like that. He's up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And so the people are down on the mountain waiting to hear back from Moses. And so we pick up here, verse 1 in chapter 32, and the Bible says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses... We do not know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, 
These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and, sac and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. That word revelry at the end of uh, verse 6, they got up and started getting drunk. They, it was a party. It was a festival. Uh, definitely not, no way that you would actually really celebrate the true God of Israel. They were, they were definitely serving somebody else. So what happened here? The people got tired of waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain. They told Aaron to make them new gods. Aaron asked for their gold earrings, made them into an idol in the shape of a calf, and he said that these are your gods now. They built an altar for it. They brought in burnt offerings. They brought in fellowship offerings. And they sat down to eat and drink and indulge in revelry. I can paraphrase afterwards what happened. Uh, God gets mad while they're doing this. He looks down. And he can see what the children of Israel are doing. And he gets mad at them. And he tells Moses, he says, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to wipe them out and I'll start a new people. And uh, Moses talks to God on Israel's behalf. He asks God to relent. God listens to him and he relents. And we pick up again in uh, verse 15. It says, Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory. It is the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it into powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. So Moses comes down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. He sees the calf and the dancing. He sees all the drinking, the revelry. He smashes the tablets to pieces. He gets mad and he smashes the tablets to pieces. Then he takes the calf. He throws it in the fire. He burns it. He grinds it into powder. He scatters it over the water. And he forces the Israelites to drink it. So what just happened here, right? The people became impatient. They got tired of waiting for Moses, right? They said, what has become of this Moses? Moses was up, was up on the mountain for 40 days, and during that time, they were already starting to forget about him. And so they decided that they wanted a new God to serve. And so they served the new God with their gold that God had blessed them with from the Egyptians. You got to remember, these people were slaves in Egypt. They had nothing. The only things that these people had was sore backs and tired feet. They didn't have any jewelry. They didn't have any wealth or anything like this. The Bible says uh, during the Exodus, when, when they left, when the Egyptians wanted them gone, uh, the Bible says that the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them whatever they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. Uh, earlier on, God had told Moses to tell the Moses and Aaron to tell the people that uh, when you leave, ask the Egyptians for whatever you want. Ask for their gold, their silver, their jewelry. And so that's what the people did. The Bible literally says that they plundered them. They, they basically just, you know, they, they, they went by and they asked, uh, you know, give us your gold, give us your jewelry. And the Egyptians just handed it over. They wanted them gone so bad. 
And so it was because God had made them favorably disposed in their sight toward the people. So this is where they got their wealth. This is where they got the gold to make the calf. So Moses gets angry. He burns the golden calf. He grinds it into a powder. He mixes it with the water. And he forces the people to drink it. The children of Israel literally pissed their wealth away. Mammon is cunning. How many times have we become impatient with God? We're, we're tired of waiting for him or, or we're tired of uh, uh, not doing things our way and uh, we end up peeing away the things that he has blessed us with. So our encouragement here is to use your money here to make friends for you there. Point number three it opens up opportunities for God to bless you. So let me give you a warning right off the bat. Uh, this is not a prosperity gospel. I do not believe in a prosperity gospel. I do not advocate for a prosperity gospel. I don't believe in a, a given you'll get. I don't, uh, I don't believe that uh, we can use Scripture and manipulate Scripture to get God to give us what we want. Uh, honestly, I, I really can't see God being satisfied looking down at, at His children and uh, saying, hey, this is awesome, this is great. My children have finally discovered the revelation, revelation of getting. So this is about being faithful to God, trusting in Him, uh, obeying His Word, and uh, letting Him work in your life. So let's turn to Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 to 12. It starts off, it says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty." How can we rob God if he owns it all? I mean, honestly, when you first read this scripture, and uh, you can't help but at first feel a little bit guilty if, uh, if you've never given when you know God, is, is, you feel convicted of God asking you to give, but you just haven't stepped out in faith and, and done what you think he's asking you, and, uh, and you feel that uh, you might have uh, stolen from God a little bit. I mean, after all, he owns it all, right? But... Uh, how can we rob God if he, uh, sorry, my question is, how can we rob God if he owns it all? We rob God of the opportunity to bless us, right? The Bible says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he owns the hills also, right? So he owns everything. So we can't, we can't steal this from God, right? We were born into this world with nothing. We'll take nothing with us. It's all his anyways. Our job here is just to manage it for him. Uh, God doesn't want our money. 
He wants us to trust him and to look to him as our provider instead of relying on our own strength. And one of the ways that he tests us is, uh, is by having us give dependently on him. I really like the Dave Ramsey quote. Those of you that are familiar with Dave Ramsey know that he's fairly outspoken. And uh, he says, God doesn't want your money. If he did, he would take it and there would be a greasy spot where you were sitting. <laughs> kind of think about that a little bit. You know, God's more interested in the cash in my, in my wallet than me and is just zap right in the, the only thing that's left behind is uh, a little black spot on the chair and, and the cash. And you know, he's, honestly, he's not interested in your money. He doesn't want it. He doesn't want to have a whole stockpile of cash. He wants to have a whole stockpile of people uh, joining him for eternity in heaven. And, uh, and so he, he tests us by how we handle that money that he's blessed us with. Let's pick it up in 2 Chronicles 31, verse 1 to 10. When all this had ended, the Israelites who were there went out to the towns of Judah. They smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. They destroyed the high places and the altars throughout Judah and Benjamin and in Ephraim and Manasseh. After they had destroyed all of them, the Israelites returned to their own towns and to their own property. Hezekiah assigned the priests and Levites to divisions, each of them according to their duties as priests or Levites, to offer burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, to minister, to give thanks, to this, and to sing praises at the gates of the Lord's dwelling. The king contributed from his own possessions for the morning and evening burnt offerings and for the burnt offerings on the Sabbath, at the new moons and the appointed festivals as written in the law of the Lord. He ordered the people living in Jerusalem to give the portion due the priests and the Levites so they could devote themselves to the law of the Lord. As soon as the order went out, the Israelites generously gave the first fruits of their grain, new wine, olive oil, and honey, and all that the fields produced. They brought a great amount, a tithe of everything. The people of Israel and Judah who lived in the towns of Judah also brought a tithe of their herds and flocks and a tithe of the holy things dedicated to the Lord their God, and they piled them in heaps. They began doing this in the third month and finished in the seventh month. When Hezekiah and his officials came and saw the heaps, they praised the Lord and blessed his people Israel. Hezekiah asked the priests and Levites about the heaps, and Azariah, the chief priest from the family of Zadok, answered, Since the people began to bring their contributions to the temple of the Lord, we have had enough to eat and plenty to spare because the Lord has blessed his people and this great amount is left over. Kind of sounds a lot like when the children of Israel began giving as the Lord directed that the floodgates of heaven were opened and they were blessed with more than they had room to receive. See, here you see the people of Israel turning back to the Lord. You kind of see a pattern going on here, right? They turn to the Lord, they turn away from the Lord. They turn back to the Lord, they turn away from the Lord. So here you see them, they're turning back to the Lord. They began giving again as the Lord had, uh, according to the law of the Lord, right? The, the king, in verse 4, the king commands the people to give as according, <coughs> excuse me, as according to the law of the Lord. As soon as the order goes out, the people began to give generously and piled them in heaps. You notice this too? they immediately began to give. They didn't wait till the end of the week. They didn't wait to say, well, let's see if God sends another sign or if God speaks again. They just gave. It, it, it's by faith. We feel that we, uh, we are called to do this. We're going to turn back to God. We are just going to start giving. So the people began to be begin generously 
and the Bible says they piled them in heaps. After the king sees the abundance the people have brought in, he actually becomes concerned and he questions the, the priests about all the heaps. So the king comes in and he starts becoming concerned for the people. I mean, the people are bringing in so much stuff. He's wondering, like, he's, he's concerned for their welfare. And uh, so he asked the priests about it. Azariah, the chief priest, answered that since the people started giving, they've had enough to eat and plenty to spare. So when the people began giving as God instructed, they were literally blessed with more than they needed. It, it's just, it's a miracle of God, right? I'll get you to turn to 1 Kings 17, verse 1. It's a story about Elijah and the widow. 1 Kings 17, verse 1 says, uh, and this is when uh, there's going to be a, a drought in the land. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So at this time, there's going to be a drought in the land. Uh, Elijah is uh, warning King Ahab. The Bible says uh, because he was doing evil in the sight of the Lord, the Bible records that uh, he was doing more evil than all who were before him. So this was a pretty, pretty bad dude, bad enough that God has to send his prophet over to him and say, hey, look, king, you're doing evil things. Uh, it's not going to rain until I say. Uh, so, I mean, it, you know, we're going to have a pretty severe drought. Verse 8 to 16. Then the word of the Lord came to him, and this is to, uh, to Elijah. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called, And, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. <laughs> Elijah sounds a lot like me when I get home from work. Right, honey? As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make me a small loaf of bread. For, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. So there's a severe drought in the land. Uh, God tells Elijah to go and see a widow to supply food for him. He goes and he finds a widow there gathering sticks. He asks her for a small cup of water. When she goes to get it, he also asks her to bring him some bread. Some other translations or versions uh, uh, record this as a morsel or like a crumb. So he is asking for just a little bit to eat, right? He's not asking for a whole meal here. And uh, so she says, as surely as the Lord, you got to pay attention to the language that she uses here. She says, as, she, as surely as the Lord your God lives, 
I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar, a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home, make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. So, you know, like, she doesn't have a whole lot of food left in the pantry. She's going to make a little bit of bread. They're going to eat this. It's going to be their last meal, and that will be the end of them. That's how she sees it. But Elijah tells her to not be afraid. Just make a small loaf for him first. You notice that again first, right? Bring it to me first. It, it wouldn't require faith on this woman to bring it to him last. It, feed me first, give of this first, and, uh, and then your flour and your oil will not run out. And, and, then, she, so, and then she should make a small loaf for, for, yeah, for him first, and then some for her son and herself. We see the promise of verse 14. Uh, the flour and the oil will not run out until the Lord sends rain. So she trusts Elijah and immediately does as he asks. The Bible says that from then on, they all had enough to eat and the oil and the flour did not run out. Uh, just to, to bring in some, uh, uh, or so you understand the, con- uh, the, uh, the context of the situation here, that drought lasted for three years. Three years, there was no rain. There was no dew. There was no frost. There was no snow. There was no fog. Can you imagine if we had to endure three years of no moisture? I mean, some of you in the farming community, the past few years, we've had some dry years. It's been tough years. But can you imagine if we had absolutely no rain? I mean, dust bowl, like everything would be brown. Everything would be parched. And uh, if you think so, you see some chaos and pandemonium now and people just watching the news about a virus, well, what about when we start running low on, on food supplies, right? So uh, the Bible says that she had enough for her, her son, and for Elijah to eat for the next three years. So the flour did not run out, uh, run dry, and the, uh, the oil did not run out. When you read this passage and you see that uh, God sent Elijah to a widow, you got to kind of question yourself, I mean, why would God send Elijah to a widow? I mean, you know, if God truly cared about widows and he cared about Elijah and stuff, why wouldn't he send him to a, a rich family to provide for him? It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't have been so hard on the widow, right? Or, I mean, if he's really God, why didn't he just send some birds to feed Elijah? I mean, he can do whatever he wants. I mean, he created this whole thing. He orchestrated all this. Why wouldn't he just send some birds to, uh, to bring Elijah some food? Uh, well, actually, in fact, he did. Let's turn back to 1 Kings 17, verses 2 to 6. This is, uh, this is just after Elijah spoke the word to uh, King Ahab and uh, tells him that there's going to be a drought. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kirith Ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kirath Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. God sent Elijah to provide for the widow, not for, sorry, God sent Elijah to provide for the widow, not to provide for Elijah. Right, the promise of, we saw the promise of verse 14 fulfilled, that they had enough to eat for the rest of the drought, for at least three years. You see, the, power, the Bible says that the power, of life and to, the power of life and death are in the tongue. 
I honestly believe that had this woman not listened to Elijah, instead done what uh, she had said and uh, just gone in and made just enough for her and her son and not trusted Elijah and brought him a cake first or a, or a loaf of bread first, that uh, that would have been their last meal and they literally would have starved to death. While Elijah is staying with her, her son becomes ill and dies. And you got to understand, right, she's a widow. Her husband has passed away. Her son is incredibly important to her. This is, this is all that she has left. It's her only family that she has left. And uh, it's also uh, a means of providing for her future, right? Without her son, she has nobody. Uh, she, she's just all on her own. Let's take a look at it in 1 Kings 17 verses 17 to 24. So sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. And she said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you, brought me tra- have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. So remember earlier when, right on, uh, when I read and uh, she was talking to Elijah and said she told Elijah that the Lord, your God, uh, she's, she's not a believer in God. She knows that there is a God, but she does not believe in God. It, it's not her God. Had it been her God, she would have agreed with Elijah and she would have said the Lord, the God, or uh, the Lord God or the Lord our God. Basically, essentially, she's asking Elijah if he has come so that her son would die to pay for her sin. She says, right, um, have, you come, uh, uh, have you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? So she's believing that Elijah is there. She believes that he's a man of God, but she's believing that he's there for her to pay for her sins and by the way of doing is that is that the Lord is going to take her son. She didn't know God as her heavenly father. She doesn't know him as loving, as compassionate, uh, as forgiving. She doesn't know how generous God is. She knew of God, but she didn't know God. Elijah takes the boy and he prays over him. The Lord hears Elijah. His soul returns to him and he's brought back to life. Elijah carries the boy back to his mother and says, look, your son is alive. And that's when you hear the difference in the, in the language that she uses. Then she says, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. You see, it was because of the resurrection of her son that caused her to believe in God. Did you catch that? It, it was the resurrection of a son that caused her to believe in God. The same resurrection in God's son that causes us to believe in God and to have faith. Shortly after, uh, after my wife and I were married, um, we were the typical family. 
we were uh, extravagantly rich and had everything that we wanted. Okay, maybe not. We, uh, we started off and we had, uh, we were typically like anybody else. We had low-paying jobs, lots of debt, and a mortgage, so uh, we didn't have a lot of money to spare. But uh, shortly into our marriage, we heard a very convicting message on tithing and giving. And it was one of those messages when you drive home from church, you turn the radio off in the car, and you sit and think about uh, what you heard that morning. And it was incredibly convicting. And we knew that God was calling us to give. Uh, what we knew of giving was, yeah, we had heard that the Bible says that you should give 10% or that, you know, the, that the Lord asked for a tithe. But our giving pretty much was a 10 or a 20 in the collection whenever we felt really guilty and remembered to bring some money to church. So our giving was done on, uh, it was done on guilt, it was done on compulsion, it was not done out of uh, a generous act or an act of faith or an act of thanksgiving like that. But we heard that message and we were convicted and, uh, and it was a good sense of conviction and uh, we, we finally understood what uh, giving in faith was and so we decided that, uh, that the following Sunday we would step out in faith. And so when we got paid, and we just took out that tithe check, and we figure, figured out the 10%, and, uh, and we wrote out that check, and, and we're just going to give as the, as the Lord leads. And shortly after that, I had a dream. And in that dream, I had a sequence of numbers. And uh, I felt like God was telling me to go buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> No, I did not go buy a lottery ticket. We didn't win 649. Actually, shortly after that, our income dropped. And uh, Anne was pregnant with our first child. And uh, the company where she was working at, they were downsizing. And they said, uh, we won't have a position for you to come back to. Uh, we're going to be eliminating your position, so you won't have work after this. And so our income dropped. And you got to remember, when you're going to step out in faith and you're going to say, Lord, I'm going to be obedient to you and I'm going to follow your word and I'm going to trust in you, if you think the, de the, the enemy, the devil, is not going to step in and try to mess you up and try to discourage you and try to get you to step away from God and, and not believe in him, uh, yeah, you've got another thing coming because he is going to try to get you to uh, steer you away from, from following the Lord with, uh, as much as possible. Uh, so here we are, we're just uh, new believers in the Lord, we're stepping out in faith, we're trusting Him, and uh, you know, our, our income drops, our, our family income drops, and like, well, how's, how's that working out, right? Here we're living on less because we're giving, and now we've actually got less coming in because our income is going down. And uh, we had well-meaning people around us, people telling us, people knowing that, uh, knowing that we had stepped out and, and taken this uh, step in faith, and we're starting to give this way, and people telling us that, hey, maybe right now you should just, uh, God would understand if you didn't give, because you guys really need the money. And, and I remember looking at my wife and saying, no, I think God would understand if we kept tithing, and if we, if we kept believing in him to provide for us. And uh, shortly after that, uh, our daughter was born, our oldest, and that was a whole episode in itself. I got a phone call at work one day. Uh, my wife wasn't due for another seven weeks, and uh, here she was phoning me at work and saying, uh, yeah, I got out of bed this morning and my water broke. And I'm like, oh, wow, we just finished prenatal class last week. Uh, 
I guess we're having a baby. And so she was at the hospital, and so I drove to the hospital, and I'm like, okay, so we're all at the hospital. This is great. Let's have a baby. And they said, oh, okay, well, no, um, she's not in labor yet. It's just that the water broke, and everything's still okay. Baby's okay, but we don't take babies here. This is at Boundary Trails in town. We don't deliver babies here that are more than four weeks premature. So you guys are going to have to go to Winnipeg. I'm like, oh, fine. Let's get the ambulance. Let's all jump in. I'll ride with you, and we'll go to Winnipeg. Oh, no, no. You guys can drive in and go by yourselves. And uh, <laughs> we're a young family, and so we're driving uh, a 1995 uh, Dodge Neon with 350 million thousand kilometers on it. <laughs> and this is in the middle of July, and it's 9 o'clock in the morning, and it's already 35 degrees. That car overheats at 30 degrees. And so, like, uh, you don't understand. Like, nope, you guys can go ahead and drive in. Uh, we'll check you out and just take your time. There's nothing pressing here. I'm like, oh, yes, there is. And so we get in the car and we start making our way to Winnipeg. And as long as I can keep this thing at, you know, 100, 105 on the highway, there's got enough wind coming through. It'll keep the car cool enough and we can make it all the way to Winnipeg. And we get into Brunkhild and we see a mile long of traffic. And I'm like, oh, no, there's road construction. They got a the pilot vehicles, the, the people are here waiting in line. If I pull over, the car is going to overheat. And so I drive past all the vehicles, and I drive up to the first guy in line there, and I just roll the window down, and I try to look as frazzled as possible, and I tell him, my wife's in labor, we're being transferred to Winnipeg right now, and i got to get to Winnipeg as fast as possible. And he just throws up his hands, and he says, okay, just, just drive on this side of the road, and, and I'll radio ahead. And, and so we just drove past everybody. And as we're driving along, all the construction workers are stopping what they're doing and giving us cheers and thumbs up, and, and we're just feeling pumped. And so we get into Winnipeg, and we manage to get all the green lights until we get to Portage Avenue, and we got to stop at a red light. And I'm like, please, Jesus, please, please. And all of a sudden, the car starts to sputter and cough, and the light turns green, and we limp the car across, and happens to be some shade there, some really tall trees. So we pull over to the side of the road, and she's still doing okay. And we wait there for a little bit for the car to cool down. We drive that few extra blocks and we get to Health Sciences. And I'm looking around and I'm not familiar at all with this part of Winnipeg. I mean, we go to Winnipeg, we go to St. Mattel or we go to Polo Park. We don't go to the hospital. So I don't know where I'm going. And I'm looking around and there's no, all there is is cars parked everywhere and no parking signs everywhere. And I'm like, well, we, we got to get in. I got to park this car. It's going to stall again. And as soon as we're looking around, somebody comes walking over. And uh, he was a maintenance worker there. And he says, you guys need a place to park? And I says, yeah. And he says, you can go park over there in that loading dock uh, where it says no parking. He says, you guys can park there for hours and nobody will know that you're parked there. He says, you'll be completely fine. Okay, we got to get inside. So we go park the car there. And, it, you know, as soon as the guy had talked to us, he was gone. And, uh, and so we parked the car there. We get into HSC. We get checked out. And everything's fine, and here I'm breathing a sigh of relief because I did it. I made it. Whew. And they said, yeah, everything looks good, but unfortunately you can't stay here because we're out of beds. You're going to have to go to St. Bonavis. And I'm like, oh, no, by this time it's already noon. It's like scorching hot outside. There is no way that car is going to make it through downtown traffic all the way to St. Bonavis. And so I asked again for the ambulance, and they're like, oh, no, you guys just go on ahead, uh, you know, I had no rush, like go for supper, go for lunch, go do some shopping. I'm like, uh-uh, we're going to the hospital. And uh, so we finally made it to St. Boniface to get checked in. And after that day, we're both pretty frazzled. And we didn't realize it. <clears throat> we didn't realize it at the time. But God is working all things through that uh, 
and that it was for our good. You see, I had relatives that just lived a block away from, from St. Boniface Hospital. And so we had a place to stay. We were in hospital for three weeks, and uh, we had a beautiful baby girl. Uh, any of you that have ever seen a premature child or have been able to, to hold a, a premature baby, she was, when she was born, she was four pounds, four ounces. So, I mean, think about two packs of, uh, of hamburger put together. But it was incredible, <laughs> right? It was incredible just to, to hold her. I mean, she was, uh, she was so small, the cartilage in her ears wasn't even developed yet, and her fingernails and toenails absolutely beautiful to see the miracle of God like that. <laughs> but God was working all things out for us. The reason why we were transferred to, to uh, St. Boniface like this, we had a place to stay. People were coming to see us. They were blessing us with money, so much so that uh, when we got home after the whole ordeal and, and she was discharged from the hospital, we had more than, than what we needed. There was leftover. We saw that again with uh, when our third child was born. We had a, a, a minor hiccup at home, and, uh, and he was rushed to hospital. He was checked out, and uh, same thing, put us in, uh, in the children's hospital in Winnipeg for 10 days, and it was the same thing. It was in July. It was a lot of back and forth driving. Turns out it was, uh, there was, it was uh, just a fluke uh, accident. There was nothing, uh, nothing wrong, but uh, in all that extra cost and this, you know, we're asking God and like, you know, we're being faithful to you, but we have all these extra costs. And I remember we come home from the hospital with him and <clears throat> in our back door was an envelope full of cash. And it was more than enough, more than enough to cover all the food and fuel that, uh, that we used going back and forth during that time. And you just know that, that God had his, had his hand in it. You know, we got to see things that we never thought possible. And I believe that's because they wouldn't have been possible without dependently giving on God. So the real question is, what's the real benefit of giving? What's really in it for me? The real benefit of giving is not just knowing about God. The real benefit is really knowing God. If I can just ask everyone to close your eyes and bow your heads. What is God saying to you through this message? If you've been wanting your heart more into God and His kingdom, and you're committing to putting your treasure there, I don't want to single anybody out. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but with all your heads bowed and your eyes closed, would you just slip up your hand? Thank you. If, you, uh, if you're here this morning and you think that you might have been serving mammon instead of serving God, remember, we learned earlier, mammon is very cunning. But today you say that those days are over. 
Mammon, I know who you are, and I serve you no longer. Instead, I'm going to serve God. Would you please just slip up your hand? If you know that God has been asking you to give, but feel that you can't trust him in this area of your life, but today you say, now I know that the word of the Lord is truth and want to commit to giving as the Lord leads, I just ask that you just please slip up your hand. Thank you. If you're the, and if you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. But you're tired of doing things on your own and you feel like you want to commit your life to him. I, just, I ask that you please just slip up your hand this morning. All right, would you all stand with me and let's all pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, you are an awesome and loving God. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness, your faithfulness. Thank you for your generosity towards us. Lord, this morning as we've learned excellent truths about you from your word, Lord, I pray for those that, that have made commitments this morning. Lord, as they step out in faith, and to follow you, Lord, I know that the enemy is going to try to distract them, try and stop them from, from being obedient to you. But Lord, I pray for protection over them, that, uh, Lord, you would have your arms around them and uh, keep them safe. Lord, I pray this morning for those that decide to make a commitment for you. I ask that, uh, Lord, I ask that you would also uh, draw them near and, and uh, have that right relationship with them. Father, you put people in their lives to encourage them and guide them along. And, uh, Father, that, uh, that they would come to know you as their personal Lord and Savior instead of just knowing about you. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.